0: Some of you don't like it when we have to turn around and say hi to someone at, in our church services. Maybe we should start to turn around and greet one another with a kiss of love. My, name, my name's Adam. If uh, we haven't met, I uh, have the privilege of serving as the, the lead pastor here, and we come to the end of our series today in the letter of 1 Peter. Now, if you know me, you know that I love to read. And one of the most enjoyable and inspiring books that I've read in in recent years is this one. Am I booming out there, or is it just on the stage? I'll keep going, Hayden? Yep, alright. This is one of the most enjoyable books that I've read in recent years, Unbroken. A World War II story of survival, resilience, and redemption. Now, it's also been made into a movie, but as is usually the case, in my opinion, the book is better than the movie. So I would encourage you to read the book. It tells the story of a man named Louis Zamperini. Now, Louis was born in 1917 and he lived in Torrance, California. He was a troublemaker, but he was also an incredibly fast runner. In fact, he was so fast that he qualified to represent the United States at the Berlin Olympics in 1936. But when World War II began, Louis enlisted in the US Air Force. He became a bombardier, and he served in the Pacific. But in 1943, the plane on which he was flying, it crashed into the Pacific Ocean, killing eight of the 11 men who were on board. Louis, along with two other men, Phil and Mac, survived the crash. But they were now stranded on a lifeboat in the middle of the ocean. They fought off hunger, thirst, heat, wild storms, and sharks that would literally bump into the life raft to try and knock them off so they could have a meal. All of this while they were being shot at uh, from Japanese planes who would take pot shots at them from overhead. Now, Mac died after 33 days on the raft, but Phil and Louis survived for 46 days adrift in the ocean. Before eventually a passing ship uh, collected them, which unfortunately was a Japanese ship. And the suffering of the men continued as they were then sent from one prison camp to the next. In these prison camps, Louis endured horrific treatment especially from a sadistic guard nicknamed The Bird. The Bird attempted to degrade, torture, and destroy Louis. But Louis endured, persevered, and survived. And when the war was declared over in 1945, Louis returned home, got married, and had two children. But he found it extremely difficult to overcome the pain of his horrific ordeal, Louis became an alcoholic and he became consumed with his desire to get revenge on the bird. His life spiraled downwards, his marriage was on the brink until Cynthia, his wife, invited him to a Billy Graham crusade. While Billy was preaching, Louis had a flashback to a bargain that he had made with God while on the life raft. And Louis put his faith in Jesus. And his life began to slowly turn around, he managed to forgive the bird, he actually reached out to the bird because he found out that he was still alive, but the bird refused to meet with him. Then in 1998, Louis was given the opportunity to carry the Olympic torch through Japan, past one of the camps that he was imprisoned in during the war. And this is a powerful picture, not only of Louis' ability to forgive, but also his unbrokenness in the face of incredible difficulty, because God in his grace had changed him so deeply and so profoundly. Now, I love Louis's story, not just because it's a story of courage and resilience and faith and hope, but also because in many ways it is the story that Peter has been telling us in this letter. For the last 10 weeks, we've been working our way through this letter, and what we've seen again and again is Peter reminding us That as Christians, we will face incredible difficulties in this life. We will face fiery ordeals like we saw last week. We will face painful trials, insults, abuse, slander. We will face many different things that will try to break us. But Peter has also been reminding us that we are God's chosen people, precious to him. We have been purified of our sin because of Jesus' death. We have a living hope through Jesus' resurrection, and we have a glorious future coming when Jesus returns. Now, all of this means is that we can suffer with and for Jesus in the present. We can face these incredible difficulties and not be broken by them. We can, in the words of Peter, stand fast in the grace of God. In fact, this is exactly why Peter wrote this letter. Right at the end, in in verse 12 of chapter 5, we we heard just a moment ago, Peter says, I have written to you briefly. Peter had much more that he wanted to say. But what he has said to us is that he has been encouraging us, testifying that this is the true grace of God. Why? So that we might stand fast in it. So that we might not give up on the grace of God. So that we might continue to show the grace of God to others. And today we come to the final week of our series and the final chapter in this letter. And Peter actually gives us his final instructions about how we can stand firm in the grace of God. He actually gives us four things that we need if we are going to stand fast in God's grace as we swim against the tide. And listen, this is so important for many different reasons. But not least because no one intends on walking away from Jesus. No one plans to give up their faith, and yet it still happens. I mean, you didn't come to church today because you want to give up on Jesus. You came to church today because you want more of Jesus. Now You might just be hanging on by a thread, but you're here, and God has some encouragement for you. Because God, in this passage, gives us four things that we need if we're going to stand firm in the grace of God and don't we all want to do that we all want to stand firm in the grace of God and so let's see what Peter tells us that we need in this passage the first if you're taking notes is this we need loving leadership now when an organization or a group goes through difficult times it's up to leadership to lead the way forward For example, last Sunday, the Brisbane Broncos endured what might have been the darkest day in their history. Now, I don't want to go into details. It's still a little bit too raw. But on Tuesday, the CEO of the club came out, released a video taking responsibility and promising change. Because when a group or an organization goes through difficulties, it's up to the leaders to lead the way. Now, remember, Peter is writing to churches who were under pressure from those around them. And so he knows that the leaders of these churches would have been feeling the heat. This is why in verses 1 to 4, he directly addresses the leaders of the church, and he calls them elders. Now, this doesn't mean necessarily that all the leaders of the church would have been old. The word elder is a translation of the Greek word presbyteros, which is used throughout the New Testament to refer to church leaders. Now, we're not told everything uh, about church leadership in this passage. There are other parts of the New Testament that give us a little bit more detail. For example, Acts 14 seems to imply that elders are to serve in teams. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 give us the qualifications as to who can be an elder. Acts 6 tells us that deacons are to serve alongside elders, helping them in the practical needs of the church. So there's far more to be said about elders than we see in this passage, but this passage does give us two important insights about elders and the nature of eldership in the church. The first thing Peter tells us is the task of elders. What are they to do? Peter says, verse 2, to the elders, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Elders are to shepherd and to watch over the flock. Now notice that it's not their flock, it's God's flock. Elders will give an account to God for the way in which they take care of God's people. And this is the main responsibility, the main task of elders. It is to care for God's people. Now, Of course, elders do lots of things related to that. They have meetings, they make decisions, they plan for the future... But all of those activities are tied to caring for people, to providing, to preserving a church community where people can flourish in their faith. That's the task of elders. But Peter doesn't just tell us what they are to do, he tells them how they are to do it. He he tells us the tone of eldership. And see, in verses two to three, Peter says, elders are to not be reluctant, but willing. Not greedy, but eager to serve. Not domineering, but they are to be role models. In other words, elders shouldn't act as if they're doing everybody a favor. They should serve because of their love for Jesus and their love for people. They shouldn't be motivated by a desire for what they can get. They should be motivated by a desire to give. And they shouldn't see themselves as boss over the flock, but they should see themselves as an example to the flock. Now, if all of this sounds like it's a a weighty task, that's because it is. It's not a small thing to lead the people of God and to be accountable to God. This is why I think Peter adds the promise of verse 4. And when the chief shepherd, that's Jesus, when he appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. To be a godly elder is not a pathway to worldly popularity, prosperity, or any of those things. But to be a godly elder is precious to God. And God sees the work that the elders do and he promises that he will reward them. Now, I'm so thankful for for the men that God has given us to, to lead our church, to serve as elders here. We meet twice a month, we set aside one of those meetings to discuss important issues in the life of the church, to make decisions that need to be made, and to grow and to develop as elders. In fact, we're just about to begin a 16-week course from the Reformed Theological College in Melbourne to help us in our role and our responsibility as elders. Because we take seriously the task of shepherding the people of God. The other meeting that we have each month is set aside to pray. We pray for you. We pray for our church. We pray for our community. We pray for our future. We pray for our world. We set aside a meeting to pray. And so I'm so thankful for these men that God has called to lead us. They're they're godly men. They're faithful men. They love Jesus and they love his church. But it is a a weighty task, and so can I invite you to pray for our elders? The next edition of the quarterly, our, our church magazine that we'll be releasing, it will have the photos and the names of not only our elders, but our deacons and our staff team as well. Can I encourage you to pray for these people by name? It's a noble task to which they've been called, but it's a weighty task. Please pray for us, because if we are going to stand firm in the grace of God, we need Loving leadership. The second thing Peter tells us that we need if we're going to stand firm in God's grace is humble relationships. Humble relationships. Now the word humility is a difficult word, isn't it? Not only because it's difficult to do, but also because it's difficult to define. It's one of those words that we kind of get so familiar with that it loses its impact, Now, if I was to summarize the teaching of Tim Keller and C.S. Lewis on this issue, I would say that humility is simply self-forgetfulness, self-forgetfulness. It is, as C.S. Lewis said, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's not hiding what you can do. It's not hating who you are. It's simply the relaxing freedom of forgetting about yourself. And if we are going to stand firm in God's grace as the people of God, we need this kind of humble self-forgetfulness. This is what Peter calls us to in verses five to seven. And the first command he gives is to Christians who belong to the church, and he calls them to adopt an attitude of humility towards church leaders. He says in verse five, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Now. Peter directly addresses this command to young people. I think because, let's face it, when you're young, you tend to think you know everything. And you tend to think that those above you know nothing. But this is not just a call to young people, this is a call to all of us. Elsewhere in the Bible, we read in Hebrews 13, obey your leaders and submit to them. All Christians... A called to love, support, and respect their leaders. Now, let me be very clear. This does not mean that we don't discuss things, that we don't disagree. This is not a call to blindly follow bad leaders. But it is a call to adopt an attitude of humility towards those whom God has entrusted to lead the church. You might be thinking, well, of course you would say this, Adam. <laughs> I get that this sounds self-serving, but I'm trying simply to say what we see in our passage. And let's not forget that this command is given in a section that is all about humility. Listen to what Peter goes on to say next. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Now, all of you in the Greek means all of you. This means church members, church leaders alike. We're all being called to humble ourselves. The Christian life, the Christian community is to be marked by humility. And if it's not, there's a very serious warning in this verse. Because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. If you are proud and not humble, no matter how much theology you know, no matter how much influence you have, God is not on your side. In this verse, domineering leaders are being warned. If you proudly exalt yourself, if you wield your influence in an abusive way, God opposes you. But at the same time, divisive followers are also being warned. If you proudly exalt yourself, you're not happy unless you get your own way, if you criticize, cut down with more fervor than you bless and support and serve, and God opposes you, because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Friends, this is really serious, and the reason this is so serious, the reason this warning is put so starkly is because humility is at the heart of the Christian faith. I mean, you cannot become a Christian apart from humility, because to become a Christian means to renounce saving yourself. It means to reject your good works, your merit, your good deeds, and it means to cast yourself on the grace of God. When you become a Christian, you say to God, God, I am sinful and undeserving in and of myself, but I freely receive the gift of grace that you give to me in Jesus Christ. It's like the old hymn, Rock of Ages, says, Nothing in my hands I bring, Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, Helpless look to thee for grace, Foul I to the fountain fly, Wash me, Saviour, or I die. Listen, we enter the Christian life humbly on our knees before God, and at no point do we get up off our knees and begin to strut. Because we never graduate beyond our need for grace. And this is why the Christian community should be a community marked by humility. It should be a community filled with people who are not easily offended or effortlessly critical, who are not filled with self-importance, who do not always demand to get their own way, but a community filled with people who love deeply, laugh loudly, serve selflessly, forgive quickly, encourage habitually, Listen intently and speak gently. This is how we stand firm in the grace of God. Together, we build a community that is marked by humble, gentle relationships. We take the low place so that God may lift us up in due time. That's what Peter goes on to say in verses 6 and 7. humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So let me ask you, are you pursuing humility? Now, I didn't ask, are you humble? I said, are you pursuing humility? You know, C.J. Mahaney wrote a book called Humility, True Greatness, and in it he says, I'm a proud man pursuing humility by the grace of God. And that is what we all are. We are proud people pursuing humility by the grace of God. And listen, I'm not, I'm not saying that this is going to come easily or naturally. Recently, I, um, someone was telling me about something in the life of the church, and, and they were just sharing with me some questions that they had that they wanted to talk about and discuss. And I've got to admit, I didn't handle it as well as I could have. I got my back up about it rather than humbly, gently listening to their concern. See, we're all on a journey. We're all pursuing humility, and none of us have arrived there yet. But if we are going to stand firm in our cultural moment, in the grace of God, we need loving leadership. We need humble relationships. And thirdly, we need firm resistance. Now, the entire letter of 1 Peter has been telling us to expect opposition from the world around us. But here, Peter tells us to also expect opposition from our spiritual enemy, the devil. Now, I know that in our day, in our our disenchanted world, the idea of a a devil seems cartoonish and, and primitive. But the Bible clearly tells us that the devil really does exist, that he is a personal supernatural being of real evil power, and he really does want to destroy us. He hates us because he hates God. Now, C.S. Lewis wisely pointed out that when it comes to the devil, there are generally two extremes to which we swing. There's superstition on one end. This is the error of overbelief, overwhelming fear and obsession with the devil. And then there's substitution, the error of underbelief, pretending and living as if the devil doesn't exist. Now, this week I I read about a, a lizard in southwest America, Apparently, when you first approach this lizard, it will puff itself up really big to make itself look really scary and really intimidating. But then, if you keep coming towards it, it will suck itself in, roll over, close its eyes, and play dead. Now, that right there is superstition and substitution. Overly fearful of of this terrible enemy, or pretending that they're dead and don't exist. But this verse here in 1 Peter corrects our thinking. And the first thing Peter tells us is we need to wake up. We need to be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Now have you ever seen the way that a lion hunts their prey? They don't kind of just stand out in the open and announce their presence. They go in the long grass, they sneak up, and they pounce on them trying to catch their prey unaware. And this is what the devil is trying to do in your life. Trying to catch you unaware to destroy and to devour your faith. To get you to stop following Jesus. Now we might endeavor to do this through suffering and pain. I mean, how do you react when difficulties and pain come into your life? Oftentimes this can lead people to turn away from God. And this is why Peter said last week, don't be surprised by suffering. Or he might also seek to do it through prosperity and comfort. Do you know it's often good things that call us, cause us to fall asleep spiritually? More money, a new toy, a new hobby, a holiday home, a bigger home. These things can distract us from our faith and dull us to God. And so, how are you fighting against the deception of prosperity and comfort in your life? The devil is always on the lookout to destroy and to devour our faith, which is why we should be on the lookout for his schemes. And we should be ready to resist him. Peter says there, verse 9 resist him standing firm in the faith. Now, if I told you that there was a lion on the prowl in this building, somewhere, don't know where. My guess is you're probably going to run. Grab your kids, run out to your car, and get out of here. But Peter, when we think about our response to the devil, he doesn't want us to run away. He wants us to resist, to stand firm. And he wants us to stand firm in the faith, which means we don't give up our faith in Jesus. We don't walk away from him. We say to the devil, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. And friends, this is the most important way that we resist the work of the devil in our life. It's not necessarily continually casting out demons. It is continually casting ourselves into the care of God. It's to keep trusting Jesus, even when we're suffering and in pain. It's to keep trusting Jesus, even when we feel safe and comfortable. Stand firm in the faith. Don't let the devil devour or destroy your faith in Jesus. I mean, let me ask you, have you been tempted to walk away from Jesus lately? Maybe you've been going through a time of suffering and difficulty. Maybe things are just really good in your life and you're really comfortable at the moment. Don't allow the devil to devour your faith. Don't leave, as Peter said back in chapter two, the shepherd of your soul. If we are going to stand firm in our cultural moment, we need loving leadership, we need humble relationships, we need firm resistance, and fourthly and finally, we need glorious hope. You know, Peter wraps up his letter with a very simple but profound truth, that though we might suffer in this life, it will only be for a little while, and there is a day coming when God will restore what we've lost. He will make us strong, steadfast, and firm forever. And this means if you're a Christian, you have a future that is incredibly bright and absolutely certain. See, because God is a God of grace, he sent Jesus to die for you, to rise for you, so that you can have a future filled with eternal glory, and this glorious hope can enable you to persevere in the present. It's like the the star that helped Samwise Gamgee in Lord of the Rings. I shared this at the first week of this series, but I think it's fitting to share again. If you've read the book or seen the movie, Sam is on a difficult journey with Frodo, he's in the evil land of Mordor, all seems hopeless, all seems lost, and he looks up into the night sky, and the clouds part for just a moment. And this is what we're told, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while, the beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. And 1 Peter is like a star in the night sky for you and me. It's a star that's telling us, though we walk through shadows, though we walk through the shadow of the valley of death, we can fear no evil because there is a God of light and love and beauty that holds all things in his hands, that holds us in his hands, and he will never let us go. And so you're going to find yourself at times swimming against the tide. But you need to know there is a day coming when the tide will change. There is a day coming when, as Revelation 22 says, the river of the water of life will flow from the throne of God and it will bring about the healing of the nations. And so my closing encouragement to you as we land this letter is to keep your eyes fixed on that day. It's to keep your faith and your trust in Jesus. Don't allow pain and difficulties and trials to divert you from him. And don't allow comfort and prosperity and ease to distract you from him. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He is faithful. He will never let you go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the glorious truths of your word. Thank you that you have given us everything we need to stand firm and to stand fast in your grace. And Lord, as we do that, help us to be people who share and show that grace with others. Help us to be a church that is marked by loving leadership, humble relationships, firm resistance, and a people filled with glorious hope because of what you've done for us in Jesus. Oh Lord, we fix our eyes on that day when Jesus will return and we fix our faith in him, knowing that he is faithful and he will never let us go. we pray all of this in Jesus name Amen Church would you stand And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast to him be the power forever and ever. Amen.